So uh, welcome to the Intervention Podcast. Uh, I'm Nick, he, him, and I'm again missing my co-host, Steve. But tonight I'm joined by Mike from the uh, Turn Leftist Podcast. How you doing, Mike? Mike, he, him. How's it going? How are you? Good, man. And also we've got Rick, he, him, from uh, Decolonized Buffalo. Rick, how you doing, buddy? Good with that. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah, so uh, tonight we're going to do something, I think, really different than usual take a little bit of a break from you know insane politics and the craziness of the world and talk about something that's i guess kind of just a passion of mine trying to blend the two things that i love the most aside from my wife communism and the lord of the rings (laughs) but uh, yeah so we're gonna talk tonight about uh tolkien and just kind of talk about what we can get as like communists i guess from tolkien if anything and just talk about who he was his writings a little bit and again just kind of have like a loose discussion um i'm not i don't have any like particular agenda with this i don't want to convince anybody of like what they should think about tolkien or anything like that beyond that even if we disagree with some people you know even if their politics aren't perfect like i think you can still enjoy reading something and enjoying literature and writing you guys have anything to say on that front i think that's very diplomatic of you right off the bat to say that you don't want to try and influence people because i will take the the opposite direction and say, of course, no, I want to change people's minds. Of course, I'm going to insist that Lord of the Rings and Tolkien in general are communist fan fictions, uh, whether even Tolkien himself realized it or not. The only way to achieve the Shire is with authoritarian communism. I'm sorry. Like we can, you can choose to disagree, but you're still wrong. So we'll do good cop, bad cop with this one. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, I mean, for me, it's just, I, I got started with Tolkien when I was really young. Like I remember going to Barnes and Noble for the, I don't know, one of the first times in my life with my aunt and uncle and they bought me a copy of the Hobbit. And I remember like sitting in one of those chairs as like a little kid and just getting into it. And I don't know, I've been a fan ever since I've read the books, the Lord of the Rings, like an embarrassingly large number of times. I think I'm probably how, like, up how many to you think? like 10. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like this, this is my third time and I'm doing the audiobook version now, but yeah, I definitely read it at least maybe this may be my fourth. I don't know. Either way, it's a couple of times. Yeah, I've read The Hobbit a couple of times, Lord of the Rings a lot, and then like the Silmarillion a few times and a, a lot of the other back background shit. I mean, before I got into reading like communist theory, like when I'd pick up a book, it would usually be like a comfort book and there was a good chance it was going to be this, you know? Yeah. So. Rick, have you read the books? How many times would you say you read them? You know what? I'll be honest. I've never read the books. And I watched the movies. The first time I watched the movies was when, you know, it was the early 2000s when it came out, right? And I watched the, you know, the the Hobbit movies, and I'm currently watching the, um, is that Ring of Power, right? Yeah. Rings of Power, and uh, and I I'm I'm a really big Star Wars nerd, so like I, you know, usually do I had read more Star Wars stuff than anything, but uh, what I usually do when I try to get into something is go on YouTube and find the backstories. Right. So um, and I think the most of, I, know, I know about Tolkien was about that movie that was made about him. Right. I don't know. Was that not that long ago? It was like five years ago. Right. Oh, yeah. The one about like him meeting his wife and all that in, in his early yeah. life. Yeah. It was like he went to war or something like that. And then it's kind of like how like he, he a lot of his writings were kind of like what he knew. And he was really like a good linguist, something like that. So it was a good movie. Yeah. I recommend I actually haven't watched that. I, I've been meaning to for a while. I just never quite got to it, but I'll have to add that to the list. Uh, you know, I think this is really interesting because I've never heard anybody uh, try to put Tolkien's work 
with theory before when it comes to communist theory. So I'm pretty, I'm here for it. So thank you. Yeah, I'm personally, I mean, just myself, I'm kind of pissed at just the fact that Lord of the Rings and Tolkien has been so co-opted by the right and white nationalists in particular. I mean, it's not surprising considering how like European and particularly like English and, you know, everything, the motifs and everything are. Um, and like a lot of the, I guess, what do you call it? Like the Nordic or Viking shit that it incorporates, like uh, there's there's so much of that. So of course it it makes sense. But yeah, I, I also wanted to add like, just when you were saying the comfort books, like I feel very much the same way about the books and the movies. Like they are such a comfort movie. Like I could put those on at any time. Uh, but yeah, I definitely get like, that's a good term for that. I like that. Yeah. Like I could put on like any movie, pick up at like any scene and just be like, okay with it you know what i mean or you catch yeah. it on tv on like a rainy afternoon or something like that it's great but to that point about like the fascists because that's kind of what inspired me to kind of reach out to you guys partly to try to do something like this because i mean one it was that like seeing like these italian fascists who obviously just won an election and they, they're pointing to this kind of stuff as like an inspiration and the formulation of like this idyllic like european life people race things like that right um, and then two, just seeing kind of like all the, I don't know, the shitty takes about having like black actors playing elves and dwarves and stuff like that in a fucking fantasy world. You know what I mean? So it was just like to try to kind of dispel some of that stuff. Cause we can talk about it a little bit more later, but as you can imagine, like with the fascist movements around like Tolkien's life during when he lived, you know, people looked at this and you said it exactly, Mike, that they tried to romanticize this Nordicism, right? Like this Northern white man kind of deal right and Tolkien actually rejected that notion like especially as it was applied to like fascists he's like yeah there are like a lot of good things coming out of like the history of the people from this region you know the linguistic side he was he was big into linguistics but he goes when it you know these fascists try to take it over and I'm completely paraphrasing here they're they're taking like the worst aspects of everything and or they're taking these aspects and applying them in like the worst possible way you know yeah so it's something that I think we have enough evidence at least to say that he would have like condemned if he was living today. So, yeah. But unless you guys had anything else just on like what it means to you and everything like that, I thought it would be good to kind of run through a quick bio on him just so people have a little bit more of the background on like what went on in his life. And I think there is going to be some discussion about how different events like living through world wars would have influenced his writings, if not necessarily like, led to him trying to write allegorically, but we can talk about that. All right, so with that, uh, so John Ronald Rule Token was born in Bloemfontein, South Africa on January 3rd, 1892 to Arthur and Mabel Tolkien. Her maiden name was Suffield. Arthur was a bank clerk and he apparently went to colonize South Africa seeking career advancement, um, but he would unfortunately die only three years after the birth of John which led to Mabel taking him at three years old and his one-year-old brother Hillary back to the West Midlands, which I guess is like kind of central England. And it's a really industrialized area at this point. Uh, but that was to be nearer to her family. His mom, Mabel, would also die like tragically young of diabetes in 1904. And that left the two boys orphaned and effectively in poverty. However, before she died, and this is pretty crucial, she converted to Roman Catholicism, which was, you know, obviously extremely rare in the land of King Henry VIII, right? Like Anglicanism was the big thing. And I think Catholics were pretty few and far between. So this kind of left her a little bit ostracized from some people that she knew in other parts of her family. So that led to Tolkien and his brother 
essentially being fostered by a Catholic priest whose name was Francis Morgan. And that was a big influence on his life. Uh, but he also spent some time at a boarding school and with several other disinterested relatives as he grew up. Um, at 16, while he was at school, he would actually meet his future wife, who was then 19 years old. Her name was Edith Bratt. Uh, but that father, Morgan, actually forbade him to pursue her further until he hit 21. So I guess he saw him like taking the time to chase girls or this girl in particular and was like, focus on school. Don't worry about this now. And he actually listened. Um, so the years go on. She's like 24 and engaged at this point. But when he finally hits 21, like he finds her again and convinces her to like break off this engagement and like start talking with him again. And they strike it up and they eventually get married. So pretty wild, like after five years that he was able to pull that off. And I think that movie that Rick mentioned probably gets into that story a little bit. Yeah. It kind of sounds like the notebook. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, it's pretty romantic, right? Like in like the classical kind of like, you know, cheesy way. Well, if you know, like the, the background on Tolkien, like in some of like the Silmarillion and like the legendarium that goes way back, there's like that famous story, Baron and Luthien and Luthien was like this half elf, half goddess kind of thing. And Edith was always the inspiration for this character. And he always considered himself to be like Baron, who was like a normal man in comparison. So kind of sweet, you know, Aww. but in any case, before he actually hooked back up with her, he entered Oxford University and this is where he really started to get into studying the classics and linguistics in particular. And, you know, from what I've read, he's, he would always been throughout his life kind of predisposed to and fascinated by, you know, the formation and nuances of language. So in 1914, while he was at Oxford, obviously World War I breaks out and he didn't immediately enlist. He waited to finish to get his degree, but he did eventually join the army in uh, 1915. And before long, he would find himself in the in the trenches of France in the Battle of the Somme. He did, however, before he left, marry Edith in March 22nd of 1916. What do you think the equivalent of, what do you call it, like a Dodge Charger was? At that point, at, at that time and in England, what do you think like all the uh, the army guys got when they got married? <laughs> right, oh, <really> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think everybody got like a, uh, I mean, shit. What did they even have for? Did they get like a horse? Did they, did they have cars? Yeah, real Mustangs. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, go, Rick, the, the Model T X or some shit like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think in the movie it kind of showed that. It showed like the, he was at school trying to go for linguistics. And then the war started. But in the movie, he was like him and a pack of friends. Yeah. And that was another big part of what kind of happened at this time for him and how it impacted him down the line. So he had like these numerous writing groups that he met with. Well, not numerous, but like one main, one main writing group with like numerous friends. And uh, I can't remember the name of the little club that they had going. But during the war, almost all of his like close friends died. He said all except for one by the end of World War One had, you know, been killed in battle. So, you know, that, that profoundly affected him um, in terms of war. He himself would actually, you know, like I said, he spent time in the trenches. Uh, he actually got trench fever, which is essentially typhus. And he was actually sent back to England. So it was almost kind of fortunate for him that he only spent four months, got sick and was able to recover and come back. But yeah, like I said, um, as you mentioned, Rick, like all, almost all of his friends died. But I think, again, this is something that I think profoundly impacted him and that, you know, the movies are one thing, but a point I, I want to discuss a, a little bit later, or even now, he doesn't really describe the battle scenes in, in the book. 
in very much detail. It's not like the movies at all. You know what I mean? There's not like these huge graphic descriptions of, you know, like Aragorn lopping off orcs heads. Like he didn't really, I don't think he saw the glory in war at all. And I think that this would have impacted him because he actually was in a fucking war, you know? Yeah. I was going to say like, once you describe that, I'm surprised that he wrote so romantically about battles and war. But again, on my listen through right now, I'm still, they haven't even gotten to Minas Tirith yet. So I haven't gotten to the battle scenes yet, but now that you're saying that, it makes me think I just have a misrepresentation of what he actually wrote as opposed to what the movies portrayed because they were very much like battle heavy, especially the two towers and Return of the King, yeah. like a lot of battle scenes and everything. And yeah, I don't really think I got that impression from the books now that I'm thinking about it. I'm glad you pointed that, uh, pointed that out because it would make sense for him to not write about war romantically and glorify it if that's the case. Even if you only had to spend four months, like just losing all your friends like that, that's tough. I think the best like written example of that is actually from the Hobbit though. So, you know, they turned the fucking the battle of five armies from the Hobbit into like a movie in and of itself. Mm. But in the book, it's like a small chapter in the book and Bilbo gets like knocked out. A rock hits him in the head, like really early on. And he basically is knocked unconscious for the entire battle. And like, you have to get the descriptions as told to him kind of like, later on so he's not even telling about it in real time now it was written for kids definitely more so than the lord of the rings i think but i think it's still interesting that you know he never really glorified it to the extent that it is in the movies and i get why they did it in the movies but you know just from like what he personally would have done can i just say like that's what's so frustrating about the hobbit movies right was that they took one book and made it into three movies whereas the lord of the rings movies that could have been like a couple movies for each book were these obviously compacted things you leave out fucking tom bombadil we can save that for later i got to talk about tom bombadil at some point but like yeah that's what's so frustrating is that i guess it seemed like a cash grab even if that wasn't the case it's like peter jackson obviously then has more cachet he's now known he's proved and proven himself with the lord of the rings movies it's been a long time people have like they've built up the funds and, and everything they need to be able to make these glorious movies but then it just didn't seem like the heart was in it and I would have been happier if he just went back and said, look, I'm going to redo the Lord of the Rings movies again, but then the way I would have wanted to do them the right way. Now that I proved you, I can fucking do it and you're going to listen to me. Like that would have been better. But like, that's also just not possible in this world, like with Hollywood run by capitalists. Like that's a thing. And like, that's why I, you have to blame capitalism for bastardizing something like the Hobbit, you know, cause like, I think you, and the fact is you still could have got like two movies out of it, but you know what? You have to squeeze every little ounce. You have to like try to replicate even just to, again, the number of movies. You, you know, it was just somebody in a boardroom saying, no, it was a trilogy before. It's got to be a trilogy this time. We've got to do the same thing again. We need that same thing. Like, Right. Yeah. And it just completely bastardized it. Right. Because we got to get those three years, those three movie releases. You know what I mean? In December, we got to give all these because I was like, I was young when the Lord of the Rings first came out. I was like eight or whatever it was. So it was like, you know, we got to capture all these people who are going back for that nostalgia to, you know, do that family trip around the holidays again, but we got to get it for three years in a row, you know? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I think just to go back to kind of the war, I think more than anything, when, well, another thing that you can point to as him being influenced by and how that comes through in his writings is the imagery and the things he would have seen in war and translating that into like descriptions of like totally like blasted places like you know mordor or you know any war torn or you know evil infected place within like middle earth you know what i mean and i think that is another way that it shows that like there's nothing he saw nothing glorious about war 
But anyway, so after the armistice, um, you know, he had fully recovered and he was back basically into chasing academia, right? And he quickly became an associate professor of the English language at Leeds in 1920. In 1925, he became a professor at Oxford and he would kind of remain there in various roles for the rest of his professional life. Um, but during those war years and throughout the 20s, as he was kind of developing in his academic career, he needed to have four children together, John, Michael, Christopher, and Priscilla. And uh, Christopher would become integral later on in trying to compile all of his notes um, into kind of fleshing out the entire mythology as he saw it, as he saw his father trying to develop it as best as he could, right? So Silmarillion wasn't published until Tolkien was dead and Christopher had kind of taken the time to put all this stuff together. So he wasn't really out noted for outputting large volumes of academic works. He seems to have been better known as kind of a lecturer and spent much more of his time on studying languages and inventing them for his always developing fantasy world. So he also famously struck up a great and if sometimes contentious friendship with another literary giant in C.S. Lewis. Um, Lewis was very famously an atheist early on in his career, and Tr Tolkien is often credited with playing a role in his conversion back to Christianity. No, oh, God damn, I didn't know that. Fuck. <laughs> you didn't? No, I had no idea, but that's crazy because do you know how many people try to use the C.S. Lewis book I think it's called uh, The Case for Christ or something. And I believe it's him. Uh, I, I could be wrong. I mean, literally someone gave me this book when they knew that I was an atheist and tried to convince me. I'm like, I just, I, I didn't even bother reading because like as much as I liked C.S. Lewis, like what I had to read yeah. of him in college or whatever, it's like, I'm not going to take anything this guy has to say seriously about God just because he can write in flowery language. Like that just makes you more convincing. It doesn't make you right. But like, I don't know. The fact that like Tolkien is kind of responsible for that, that's, that's annoying because then because again of how much influence C.S. Lewis has supposedly had with his book and doing the same thing to other people. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say, I, I mentioned that they had like this kind of contentious friendship and a lot of it came down to, well, one, it was because Lewis went to Anglicanism rather than Catholicism and Tolkien. I mean, Tolkien was kind of a bastard about it. like he really had like this Catholic superiority complex or whatever, right? But oh, the shit. other thing is, like, when they had this writing, this writing group, um, so it was called the Inklings, and, like, it was him and some other, you know, regulars, and it sounds like it was more like a drinking and smoking club for people that kind of like to write, but, you know, they would bounce ideas off of each other. And one huge criticism of, uh, of Lewis that Tolkien had was that he wrote basically too directly an allegory, you know? Like, if you looked at the Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know if you guys have ever read or seen those movies or anything like that, like, it's so obviously the Christ story, right? At some level, like with sacrificing the lion and all that kind of shit, you know? And Tolkien was basically just like, you're too on the nose about this shit. You know, like write a story to write a story, like write your own story, you know? Is that, um, is that to imply that Tolkien had any direct alleg allegories that he admitted to at any point? So Tolkien, and maybe we can just skip to like the forward because I think that really captures his view on like how he wanted his works to be interpreted. So if you actually like read the forward of the Lord of the Rings, it talks about allegory versus applicability, which is where I think it opens the door for us to apply it as a, as fucking communist agitprop if we want it to be, you know what I mean? Um, so from the forward, he says, quote, as for any meaning or message in the Lord of the Rings, it has in the intention of the author, none. It is neither allegorical or topical. The real war does not resemble the legendary in its process or its conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then certainly the ring would have been seized and used against Sauron. 
he would not have been annihilated but enslaved, and Barad-dûr would not have been destroyed but occupied. In that conflict, both sides would have held hobbits in hatred and contempt. They would not have long survived even as slaves. He continues on, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. An author cannot, of course, remain wholly unaffected by his experience, but the ways in which a story germ uses the soil of experience are extremely complex, and attempts to define the process are at best guesses from evidence that is inadequate and ambiguous. Can we look again at that first paragraph in the foreword and see if we can deduce anything from that? Because this, this line in particular where he says, The real war does not resemble the legendary in its process or its conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then certainly the ring would have been seized and used against Sauron. He would not have been annihilated, but enslaved, and Barador would not have been destroyed, but occupied. In that conflict, both sides would have held hobbits in hatred and contempt. They would have not long, they would have, they have not long have survived even as slaves. So, is he saying that if he had modeled his story after the real life war, that this model would have fought? Like, who are the hobbits in that scenario? Are they the Jewish people who are fighting against? And then Sauron is Hitler, and then Barador is Nazi Germany, gets occupied, and then... But then is he saying that, that the Jews end up as slaves in the real world at the end of World War II and then don't survive long? Like, where's he, where's he going with that? Yeah, I don't know. I, he might be talking about Jews. I guess I read that just as, like, normal, everyday people because I think that's, like, his representation for hobbits. You know what I mean? More than anything. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't... And this is another thing that I want to talk about a little bit later, or even now. I mean, he definitely was infected with a little bit of like British exceptionalism at some level, right? That's if I'm even getting the right war. I'm, is he talking about like World War One or two? Like, I could be, I could be way off getting the wrong fucking war. But I think he's talking about World War Two. Okay, go ahead, okay. Rick. No, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, we, I know he served in World War One. So when did he write the? The Hobbit during World War II or during World War II? Like what, what's the years that he wrote these books, Lord of the Rings? And The Hobbit was published in 1937 and The Lord of the Rings from 1955 to 1956 is when okay. the series came out. But that's actually another point that he also makes is that like he said they're not topical. And I cut this out of the, the foreword, the, the parts that I actually took from it. But he says that like, they really couldn't be topical because I was writing these stories for like, I was imagining this universe for, you know, in some cases before the either war had even started, you know what I mean? So that was his thing. I think he was talking about the, the legendary war here versus the, the real war in that particular scenario, because I think he was actually getting a lot of like questions about world war two, just because it came out just after. So I think mm -hmm. that, I think he was referencing world war two in that scenario. I could be wrong, but I'm, pretty sure of that no that makes sense but then it just still makes me have so many more questions like i was just saying when i explained my trying to unpack that to the one-to-one -one scenario of the world war ii with what he's just said there i don't know um yeah then it makes me wonder why he writes it the way he does i mean what he doesn't realize is that you know both sides the ussr side did hold hobbits in contempt right and the ring was essentially seized by the u.s if we want to call it that right and yeah Baradur was occupied 
I, you know what I mean? And taking like the lead as the, the global hegemon. But like, again, like, I don't think he had, I don't think his political analysis was that developed in terms of like geopolitics. And I think he was infected a little bit by frankly, like Orientalism a little bit, even though like he has many statements like rejecting racism explicitly. And, but I think it's just hard to, I think it would hard not to be infected a little bit by British exceptionalism Orientalism. If you're born in South Africa in you know 1896 and you're living basically at the zenith of the British Empire, and he was proud of his like Anglo-Saxon heritage, you know. So again, I think it would have been hard things to overcome if you weren't invested. If you're you know if you weren't invested in the politics side of it, and you're more invested in linguistics and history, and you're not focusing in on that as much. I mean, I'll absolutely give uh, Tolkien credit for the level of environmentalism that he just kind of has in his writing for that time. Like you're saying, he's at the peak of the British empire. He's like living in the, the best of times where industry looks like fantastic. And he's writing about Saruman and the fires of industry burning down this sacred forest and everything. It's like, that sounds like a very blatant, almost like Greenpeace kind of message to me. And it's like for him to even have that idea in his head at that time, is impressive and i'd like to credit him for it but yeah i think like you're saying because he lives in england at the time because he's got that exceptionalism and just the liberalism at, at its core um i say the same thing about dickens i mention him all the time because i had to study him so much in college but it's like both of these guys had very anti-capitalist critiques and they just didn't go all the way with it because they also were anti-communist if communism was even a thing that entered into the minds at that point. Like for Dickens, probably not so much, but for Tolkien, I'm sure he was at least aware of it, but didn't agree because of course that's foreign to Westerners. You can't agree with that. That's totally alien and, and wrong and fails every time it's tried, of course. But yeah, I mean, you can see he's got this, this anti-capitalist kind of bent to him and he just may not even realize that himself, but he comes out in the very kind of liberalist and kind of individualistic, you know, where the, it only goes to the level of, the Shire being like the perfect anarcho anarcho commune, you know, right? or anarcho syndical syndicate, I guess it would be like it's they won't go all the way in the direction of authoritarian communism because they want to envision a world where they could be left alone in the Shire if they got rid of the evil. And it's like, yeah, well, we have a lot of steps in between to get there. Right. And that's and that's what I think he misses. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead, Rick. So, you know, I know, you know, yeah, you, you brought up a good point that, you know, he was born in, in South Africa, which is during, you know, very the height of colonization during the British. Um, do you know if, it, if he, what influenced his, uh, you know, his creating dialogue, not, not dialogue, but his this language? Because in the movie, he talks about him studying like ancient languages and creating his own language, you know. Do you know what cultures he got that from or if he studied um, any culture outside uh, European cultures or was it strictly like, like Norse? I don't know what he studied or like, you know, like the, the yeah. European. Indigenous. So I think he first like found a love for it when he was in, I guess what would be like secondary school, you know? And like, I think at that mm -hmm. time they were still learning old languages. Um, I do know for a fact that, you know, in terms of his study, I think he did focus mostly on like old English and Norse, but he did have a, a lot of respect for other languages as well. 
And just to add some evidence to that, uh, I think it actually comes into show like how anti-racist he was because he had such a respect for other languages and cultures and uh, things of that nature. So he said, just had to quote when I think he was asked about like apartheid and he said, I have the hatred of apartheid in my bones. And most of all, I detest the segregation or separation of language and literature. I do not care which of them you think white. So again, why he, I, I don't think he studied anything else necessarily, at least in depth. He at least had like a lot of respect for, you know, different aspects of culture and, you know, thought there was value all over the world from that perspective, especially. Uh, before we go forward, I do have a question. I know we, we talked about when he was born and where, but uh, what was his timeline what, like, uh, during his death? Can you talk about that a little bit? Where, how long did he live? And Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I had a little bit more just to wrap up his life, like after we were talking about Lewis too. So yeah, so I mentioned when he published the books um, and then, yeah, he ultimately died in 1973 um, and his wife actually preceded him in 1971 and they had Baron and Luthien inscribed on their uh, on their gravestones, which I thought. was oh. cool. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, so lived through, you know, fought in one world war, um, lived through another. And I think he was actually a code breaker in the second world war, or at least he assisted on the code breaking front as well. So, I mean, definitely led a pretty interesting life for sure. But just on the topic of like how his world was developing, cause I think that's important to also understanding his books. Like he's stated as basically saying that this formation of this world was primarily linguistic and inspiration and was begun in order to, to provide the necessary background or history of Elvish tongues. So like, basically he's like, I want to make these languages and I'm going to build a world that makes sense for them, which is kind of wild, but it was also always developing, you know? And that's why at the end, it really took his son to kind of step in and compile literally mountains of notes to, again, set the backstory for the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. So it was always developing throughout his life. He never even saw the final version or like his final vision for the legendarium or whatever you want to call it, you know? Um, the other part of that is, and I, sorry, I'm I know I'm talking a lot at you guys, but one of his other purposes for developing this was that he looked at, you know, the Anglo-Saxon English, right. And he wasn't able to find like any real mythology. Cause a lot of, I guess, like the oral traditions had been kind of lost through the years. They weren't recorded. They didn't have like a King Arthur cause King Arthur was actually Welsh and King Arthur was a British in the in the real sense of like the Brit Celtic sense Roman character right so but he said like the Anglo Saxons didn't have their own mythology in a way so that was kind of part of his endeavor as well to create this like made up history for something that he thought was missing. So. I think this, this is very interesting because it kind of like um, not to go off off the topic too the, too much but how like a lot of like native um, stories have been deleted. And we now we're, you know, our, obviously our culture is developing into something new. And it kind of sounds like that's what he did himself, right? Like a lot of the British Celts uh, culture or stories were, you know, obviously erased from, you know, it, what I call internal colonization in Europe. Or, you know, uh, even though <laughs> England was the mass uh, colonizer at one point, but I think if you go even earlier, earlier than that, the Romans were trying to colonize uh, the British, right? So, you know, trying to create new narratives is something that, you know, obviously it's, 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 it's normal for, for people to do. So 
very interesting to see it from this point of view. Yeah. You know, I was always fascinated by like the ambition he had with that, you know, like looking back at like a, you know, cultural groups history and saying like, we're missing something here. So I'm going to go out and create it. (laughs) But, you know, he used like looking at old things like Beowulf was like a big inspiration for him. Um, just in terms of the, the kind of structure of epics, not necessarily in like ripping off the story or anything like that. And again, the language around it. Go ahead, Mike. One of the things in particular um, that I remember from study, like I have an English degree from college forever ago. And one of the things that they talked about was this theme called Ubi Sunt. It's U-B-I-S-U-N-T. And it just means where are they now in like Norse or some shit. And it literally is just a bunch of poems of these dudes like talking about their horses and their battles and everything and then imagining like oh well where are all the other previous warriors that came before us that did all the same thing like where are they now where are their horses and tolkien has like a legit poem or two in this i think it's in the two towers and i think it's theoden who says it when he's like burying um his son or something and he says like where are the the riders where are the the horses where are all the you know you, I'm, everybody's familiar with it but that's a direct call to that one and yeah i mean of course like there are a lot of these themes that you can call back to from generations and generations ago. And I think that's, what's kind of frustrating in one sense to me. It's like, I love that he's doing that. And I love that he's got these callbacks to old English culture and cultures before him and everything. But then if like people to get back to the co-opting of this by like the far right and white nationalists, it's like to think that yours is the only culture that like has that kind of theme. It's like, there's not a single theme that you could pick out of old anything literature like white cultures norse like english or anything that isn't present in every other culture's writing as well it's like like rick i'm sure you can attest like there's probably no native people that think about their elders or previous generations at all right like that's not a thing among like <laughs> indigenous literature or anything it's like i don't know i guess that's what's annoying about it to me is just the, the pretend superiority of these things when it's like every culture just has different words for these things it's like you just haven't maybe found out about them in other cultures yet yeah. And Rick, if you got something before I go, please, please go ahead. But no, you can go ahead. Okay. No, I just wanted to, I, I like that point that you made that there's a lot of similarities just in terms of like the human experience, like wherever, wherever you are in the world or, you know, at any time period. So I don't know what struck me was I just read a book recently called Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James. And if anybody's read by anything, or if you haven't read anything by Marlon James, he's fantastic. He's a Jamaican author. Um, he writes, you know, several, he's got several great like historical fiction books. Um, Brief History of Seven Killings is a great one. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. But he's got this book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which is going to be part of a trilogy. And his goal with this book was to essentially try to create, as Tolkien did, kind of like this mythology for Africa. So like from various parts of Africa, right? Drawing on like different traditions from different cultures, different like oral stories that have come down, things that have been kept, you know? So he wanted to kind of draw on all these things and create, again, like this kind of fantasy epic, right? Based on African traditions. And, you know, just to kind of draw the connection here, when you read it, like there's still like a lot of Lord of the Rings-esque type things that come through just in terms of like the epic scale, 
different themes that come through. So it just makes me think if they're both kind of drawing on these like old lineages to create like these fantasy epics and like there's at least some kind of through line in terms of like the feel and the, the motions that they provoke, then there must be some connection between the original or the origin points of those projects. You know what I mean? Did you have anything? No. Okay. Cause I wanted to, um, to say something as well. It's like, I think it's funny. Like, I think an overall point we could make a lot with the Lord of the Rings is like the reason that it's so popular here. And in, of course in the UK and everything is because it's so similar to that culture that people have been raised in and uh, brought up to revere their whole lives. And it's like, but if you look at the actual scale of human history, it's like people have lived how how much time do people spend as like knights on horseback? How long did they, did that even last? Like a few hundred years? Like that was a very limited amount of time. Like I mean, maybe a few thousand if you include like the different styles of like battle that took place on horseback with like armor. If you wanted to include include those, like we're not talking about just like feudal England or whatever. It's like it's such a small scale of history, and it's like people have spent as a species way more time as like nomads. Uh, living in like small communities like doing some farming or whatever like all kinds of other lifestyles that we just don't really know about and may end up having to go back to if climate change plays out the way it seems like it's going to and i think it will be funny if people end up adopting myths that follow that kind of lifestyle because it becomes more familiar to them than something like knights on horseback it'll just be you know, kind of ironic in a way yeah we could all be hobbits, hopefully. That would be a good thing, I think. I mean, ideally, that would be like the greatest. <laughs> Just feasting and smoking in our own, you know. I mean, it's what I'm doing currently, but like it requires a lot more exploitation <laughs> on the global south than I would like. So, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, we want the Shire everywhere, not just in the north. <laughs> but anyway, um, so just to get back to Tolkien a little bit, um and his politics in particular, I think one of the best ways to kind of get a glimpse into what his mindset was, at least on the politics side, is to actually read a letter that he wrote to his son in um, 1943. I had just clicked so, that link when you were talking about the other thing, and I was like reading this, I'm like, oh, it's firing me up because he just sounds like such a, he yeah. sounds like an anarchy, but good. Yeah, no, he definitely is. Um, so yeah, so he wrote this on November 29th, 1943. At the time, his son Christopher was 18 and had been called up into the Royal Air Force. Um, and so when he, this letter was written to him, he was at a training camp in Manchester. So this is Tolkien. So my political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs, or to unconstitutional monarchy. I would arrest anybody who uses the word state in any sense other than the inanimate realm of England and its inhabitants, a thing that has neither power, rights, nor mind. How are you going to do that, and bro? I, How are you going to arrest people who use the word state? With what? With your not state? Go fuck yourself. Right, exactly. And after a chance of recantation, execute them if they remained obstinate. Again, what? with how? <laughs> that sounds very authoritarian, bro. I know. The contradictions. Um... If we could get back to person, if we could get back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun, meaning the art and process of governing, and it should be an offense to write it with a capital G, or so as to refer to people. 
If people were in the habit of referring to King George's council or Winston and his gang, it would go a long way to clearing thought and reducing the frightful landside into theocracy. Anyway, the proper study of man is anything but man, and the most improper job of any man, even saints who at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. Me. It sounds like a fan of democracy, at least, right? I mean, I like the idea. So he does this thing where he says, referring to King George's council, Winston and his gang. What is the, I guess he, what he's saying is that if you just referred to the people in power as some very colloquial and familiar term, they would lose their mystery and their air of authority, and we could do away with it entirely. And it's like, to me, that just seems like, when I'm reading this passage, this whole thing just makes it seem like this guy would be a fucking ant cap if he were alive today. because of a position of privilege like he would go in the libertarian but still kind of capitalist direction because he doesn't want to be materially affected by the the change and like the equality and everything so he would absolutely go in that direction especially like with how fucking fast he went very authoritarian with people who disagree with him it's like motherfucker like you just you you cannot call that anarchy and say you want your all for freedom and then say you want to execute and arrest people like go fuck yourself right no 100 percent. i have a question yeah so does anybody has it, has anybody written about um his political thought like just you know why he thought or his involvement in politics in his life? Um, the most I was able to kind of gather for this was just kind of drawing um different quotes on different things, and you know he's got quotes on Stalin, he's got quotes on Hitler. You know he doesn't like either one of them very much. He seems pretty disdainful. But still, centrist type. Yeah, yeah, but like pretty disdainful. But I would say, if push came to shove, he probably would still be supportive of Churchill, especially in like the context of like World War II, you know. Um, so yeah, but the other thing is like they didn't have a lot of money. Like he never had a lot of money because like he That's didn't. Surprising. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he made it. Like I, I don't think he had four kids. Like his his wife, I don't think I don't think Edith worked and. I mean, he never had like a lot of output in terms of like, you know, he didn't go on like these mass lecture tours. You know what I mean? Like the Lord of the Rings was like published like later on in his life. You know what I mean? Because we're talking about 55, 56. He was dead less than 20 years later, you know. So I think for the majority of like time that he grew up and his kids were growing up, like I don't think they had money. He grew up in poverty as well, you know. But I still, that's not to say that I, you know, if, it's not to say he would have been a socialist at all. I think I agree with you 100% that he would have defaulted to this like ANCAP position because like he was a, he was a liberal, you know, who's infected with liberalism, you know. Um but uh I'll forgive him. He's probably my favorite liberal, but <laughs> I mean, so that's the thing. He's one of the only English writers that I care about at all. Like I said the other mm-hmm. one is Dickens and I think I was confusing. I just assumed that he was well off because he wrote such good shit and it's so popular now, but that doesn't translate to the popularity of it back then. Like, I don't know if Lord of the Rings was as popular in just book form when he was alive as it is now. Um, It seems like it's probably only grown. And, you know, as opposed to like Dickens, who was literally so prolific, he was, he would be finishing one book while writing the, the start of the next one, which is fucking ridiculous to me. Like I won't even read two books at a time. Like, let alone write to that's ridiculous but yeah well i think one piece of evidence that i think i remember correctly to this is that if you recall there was like a really like 
I don't know. It's kind of like nostalgic for me, but it's kind of a bad, like old cartoon version of like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like, I haven't still, seen it, but it, heard of it. It's still like fun in its own like kind of campy way. But I think at some point, like he was kind of desperate for money, like even later on in life. And like that was kind of like the initiation of him like selling off, excuse me, the book rights just to kind of get to make a movie, just to kind of get some cash together. Part of it was he could also never commit to a publication schedule. Like, you know, he only really published four major books. You know, he's, I saw the Lord of the Rings as one book. So that and the Hobbit in his life. And it's because he never really finished anything. He couldn't bring it to completion, you know? So he really, he could never like went to a schedule like Dickens did, at least for my understand how he worked, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was the thing like Dickens would publish in the, I guess it was a serialized thing. And this must've been before television, obviously. So they would like, people would, look forward to the monthly or whatever it was issues of a novel and that's how it would come out and literally to the point where like when there was this one character that was going to die or something and people were worried about little nell people were like waiting on the docks for the shipments to come in because they were like so on the edge of their seats for this shit so i think that must have changed by the time that tolkien was writing or he just wasn't ready to commit to like whatever magazines were publishing that kind of literature in a serialized format that's wild because I can't even wait a week before like an episode comes out on Netflix. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, let alone a ship to come in with a book. Like, can you imagine? <laughs> well, like think about The Hobbit. There was t- twenty years between that, but I don't even know. Like to your point, Mike, I don't even know if there was like the expectation that there was going to be a sequel. It's like, hey, here's like a fun, fantastical story. You know, I don't think he was like super well known. Like he didn't have a lot of hope for the Lord of the Rings to even get published originally, and that's he writes that in the foreword as well. I mean, what could we even, that's something we could even talk about is like, I don't know if any of you guys know, but what's the history of fantasy writing before Tolkien? Because from my point of view, like the way I understand it, he pretty much invented the majority of it. Because if you look at like any other fantasy writing now, they all have like fucking orcs and elves and all the same shit that he came up with as far as I know. Well, you got to think about the Bible's fantasy writing. So just saying, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wait is that a thing oh, of course it's a thing right like yeah. there is right but i mean i think that's like i mean even as a joke i still think that's a fair point that i think for his like original inspiration like he would have gone pretty far back to like the the viking sagas for like even like the concept of like elves and dwarves and things like that you know but like i don't think there was like a you know in the age of like dickens and stuff like that they weren't writing fantasy novels like victor hugo or, or that ilk they weren't putting out fantasy novels or dostoevsky or anything i'm like speaking from a very eurocentric perspective you know what i mean but so i don't know but yeah i just literally don't know of any other authors before uh tolkien who were writing the kind of fantasy that we think of today like i think now it's just assumed if somebody writes a fantasy novel you assume it's going to be kind of this format like the lord of the rings and it's going to involve at least some of those characters some dragons probably like all the same it's like you know what do you think of as uh what is it game of thrones it's like that fits perfectly in with the lord of the rings universe you could plop it right in there yeah yeah except it's not as good but no it's i think i think a lot of our this is globally you know but i think a lot of our even even in europe uh there's has been a lot of fantasy storytelling i think maybe he's just uh, I could be really be wrong, but I think maybe he could be the first one to, to put it on paper, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I, I know even like the the talk, talking about dwarves and little people, that's a global um, story with native cultures all around the world, even in Europe, right? So yeah, that's something we've had forever. Is this our storytelling and fantasy? 
fantasy mm. storytelling, you know? So it's, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm definitely contradicting myself when I, I just said earlier, like, Oh, what you're so white that you don't know about these classic literature themes in every other culture that exists. And it's like, Oh yeah, of course there's probably some native version of orcs and I just don't know of it. So I'm just like showing my white ass, of course. No, no. I, I talk about, because I have, I have a whole episode about little people and little people is like a global, it's weird because it's a global phenomenon, right? And I, the reason why I, I open up more because I have um, my, what, what I call my white friends and they're pagan and they, they told me about the European little people story. It was like very similar. I mean, native people and obviously Europeans didn't have come in contact for 400 years, but these stories existed pre-contact, which is really amazing when you think about it. How Europeans and Native peoples have the same, you know, similar uh, folk tales. Yeah. No, I, I, I. The more that I'm hearing, you know, you talk, Rick. The more I'm thinking that, like, if you dive back, there's a lot of like common themes across the board, and maybe Tolkien did recognize that to some extent. Like, given that quote he said earlier, you know, that like doesn't care which part of like your language or culture you consider white, you know, it all has value. Right? And he was talking about apartheid. Um, so, yeah. But no, I mean, I, I think just in general, if we're talking about in terms of like a popular fantasy novel, I think that it's probably fair to say that Tolkien started it. Like novel in like the very modern sense of that, you know? Like any hard rock band is going to name Zeppelin as like an influence. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's how it is. Dude, my face when I realized that uh, there were lyrics in Ramble On by Led Zeppelin that referenced like literally just Tolkien. He's just talking about in the depths of Mordor. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is but... Golem. Golem and the evil one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robert Plant was a fucking nerd too, so. Um, but you guys want to keep going with this letter? Yeah. See what else he had to yeah. say to his kid? I'm not angry enough. He was pissing me off with his contradictory uh, logic yeah. already. Yeah. So he's talking about men leading men and he says, not one in a million is fit for it. And least of all those who seek the opportunity. And at least it is done only to a small group of men who know who their master is. The medievals were only too right in taking Nolo Episcopari, which I looked it up. It's basically, it's basically a priest being offered a bishopric and saying no. Right. So he was, he's saying that they were only too right in seeing this as the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop actually right he says give me a king whose chief interest in life is stamps railways or racehorses and who has the power to sack his vizier or whatever you care to call him if he does not like the cut of his trousers so like again another contradiction like so you know if you're gonna have a state give me someone who's only interested in like administering that state right at some level at least that's how i, I mean, read that See, this is why i say he's a like everyone else he's a fucking marxist and doesn't realize it because there's a very easy way to do this it's like all these fucking people think they're so clever when they say i mean he's right when he said how did he phrase it hold on i gotta go back a line not one in a million is fit for it and least of all those who seek the opportunity it's like yeah no shit the people who seek power are the least fitting of having power over other people because they're usually fucking sociopaths and just asshole people to begin with so what do you right. do you de you define a system by that by that maxim and you just only appoint people to power who are not seeking it you make that come from a democratic appointmentship like you just have people who are organizing together all at the same level and then those people together decide this person is someone that we actually believe in and know we can trust because we've fucking worked with them at a community level like we've worked with them side by side we know them and this is the whole thing it's like if you are basing all of this off of individualism 
that is never going to even enter into your mind because like the whole idea of just working together to begin with and having things develop out of that never even comes into you just never even think of it yeah you know who did practice some nolo episcopari stalin <laughs> probably now too i imagine they both did yeah. oh man um so he goes and so on down the line but of course the fatal weakness of all that after all the only the fatal weakness of all good natural things in a bad corrupt unnatural war, world is that it works and has worked only when all the world is messing along in the same good old inefficient human way the quarrelsome conceited greeks managed to pull it off against xerxes but the abominable chemists and engineers have put such a power into Zertzi's hands in all ant communities that decent folk don't seem to have a chance. We are all trying to do the Alexander touch, and as history teaches, that orientalizes, orientalized Alexander and all his generals. The poor boob fancied or liked people to fancy he was the son of Dionysus and died of drink. The Greece that was worth saving for Persia perished anyway and became kind of a vichy Hellas or fighting Hellas, which did not fight. Talking about Hellenic honor and culture and thriving on the sale of early equivalent of dirty postcards. But the special horror of the present world is that the whole damn thing is in one bag. There is nowhere to fly to. Even the unlucky little Samoyeds, I suspect, have tin food in the village loudspeaker telling Stalin's bedtime stories about democracy and the wicked fascists who eat babies and steal sludge dogs. There is only one bright spot, and that is the growing habit of disgruntled men of dynamiting factories and power stations. I hope that encouraged now as patriotism may remain a habit, but it won't do any good if it's not universal. So he's calling for a world revolution, I think, to blow up the factories. <laughs> <clears throat> he gets that like industry is bad. Like on some gut level, mm -hmm. he gets that like burning down a forest just to make a factory is not the best use of that land. You know what I mean? Like he gets that in some way, but then also doesn't understand. I don't know. I think that's just what I keep arriving at a lot is just that you can definitely have the Shire, but you have to then use historical analysis to realize that you also need to do some unfortunate defense of that Shire if you want to maintain it. And he's just not getting to the point yet. Because yeah. obviously, you know, it kind of sounds like, you know, uh, we can only assume what he felt politically by his letters. Uh, was there, did he travel uh, outside like did he ever travel to the soviet union did he ever travel to like any other you know third world countries do you know or did he was he did he was was he one of those like state england type of type of people you know yeah i mean to my knowledge and again i could be wrong on this other than being born in south africa and then just fighting in the war i don't think he did any travel outside of england again i, I don't know that he had the money to yeah, because I don't think he, he even in like, like book tours or yeah. anything. Sorry, sounds sounds like a liberal because he kind of like uh, he it's kind of like liberals always have like I could make the world better with these ideas, but they never have a full grasp of like like the whole like all of all the, the contradictions. You know what I'm saying? So and British people in general, <laughs> like you're you're right in the beginning. They 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 do uh, overlook their exceptionalism. You know, they do overlook their colonization. So. You know, it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking his stories because a lot of people like, you know, his stories, I do too. I love Lord of the Rings. Uh, but I, you know, it's, it's, I think him as an individual, I, I would imagine, I will almost say like how much better his writing would be if he did travel to like, even the Soviet Union, right? 
and try to understand communist and communism and communist society, I, I can only imagine how much better his writings would be. Oh, I 100% agree with everything you just said. I mean, I think, again, there's value in enjoying his works and, again, like applying what we like out of them in a way that we see, because, again, he gives us license to do that. But I don't think it's, you know, he's not someone you go to for political thought, you know what I mean? Unless you just want to stay a liberal, you know? <laughs> Like what that what what's that other author that gets ripped a lot? J.K. Rollins. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I think she deserves to get ripped a little bit more. Absolutely. But, <laughs> yeah. Although I mean, again, we can get into this a little bit too. Like with Tolkien's Catholicism, like I do think that he probably would have been pretty socially conservative, you know. So there's a lot of debate on this, and I'm posting some screenshots in the uh, the group chat right now if you want to look at them. Um, one was just another quote, like you said, that thing where he said he hates apartheid. So the fact that he just even had that in his mind to say makes mm -hmm. me think he may not have been so socially conservative as we might initially think, just based on that one letter. But then also there's this thing here. I'm going to put it in the group chat so you guys can see it now. But I don't know. I don't know how much to take this with a grain of salt or not. But this says it's a tweet, and they somebody they say Tolkien's words, and it's just a screenshot of like a some part of the hobbit and they say the harfoots the most numerous of hobbit strains were also the smallest they had nut brown skin and hair they loved hill lands and often enjoyed the company of dwarves these harfoots were the first of the hobbit people to cross over the misty mountains and enter Eriador. and then if you look and then under it has a screenshot of just nut brown color google images and it's like these people are brown these are obviously people of color they're not brown so i don't know if that means that like he harbors some kind of sympathy and he's like, he's less racist than you might think just for a dude who was born in South Africa and grew up in England and wrote Lord of the Rings. But like, it also just kind of ties in with like, he could just be tying in the, we all came from Africa, you know, at the root of it, tying that into the, the root of the hobbits as well. Well, uh, I think um, one thing that I found just from, again, being online is there's this community called the one ring.net, right? And it's like a fan fan-made community, right? Like fan built up, fan maintained. And they had a tweet thread responding to some of this stuff. Like I see the one thing that you posted is a response to fucking Elon Musk of all people talking about Tolkien. Mm -hmm. We'll get to his fucking ass in a minute. But like, again, the response from this, the one ring.net. And again, they're not like officially Tolkien people, but again, they're like nutty fans like I am, I guess, you know what I mean? That maintain this. And their, their position was that like Tolkien intentionally never wrote about like race explicitly you know what i mean he doesn't really describe skin color other than like to the extent that you just did in like very vague terms but he doesn't really talk about you know race in those kind of ways like he talks about like races of elves dwarves orcs like very distinct like humanoids but not like categories of people so i, I thought that was interesting as well because you know as i'm thinking back through it you know and I, I guess, again, this is my own because of how, I, you know, I grew up in freaking Pennsylvania, right? Like, it's like, yeah, of course, I'm going to picture everything as white dudes as like a five-year-old Pennsylvanian with no exposure to anything else. You know what I mean? But like, then you read it when you get older and you think about this stuff and you realize he really doesn't get into those categories, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then when he does, it's very easy to read. Here's another screenshot I'm posting. It's very easy to read an anti-capitalist message into what he's saying. Here's uh, another tweet or something from Tumblr, it looks like. And they say, do you ever think about how Tolkien's vision of the greatest evil in the universe was something he referred to as, quote, the machine? 
which was his way of talking about accelerated industrialism and mass surveillance, and he wrote multiple books where the main villains were a dragon who sits on a huge pile of treasure that he never intends to use, but incinerates anyone who comes near it, a man in a giant tower who's wrecking the environment with his factories, and an evil being who's, who uses what's essentially a listening device to control the citizens of Middle-earth. And now Amazon is making a token show. You ever think about that? And I think that's great. That's a, I can see why that's a viral Tumblr post. Yeah, and I mean, one of the points that I had about, like, if we're allowed to, and it's related to this, I think, like, if we're, again, given kind of the life license by Tolkien to adapt this or apply it, applicability, however we want, then I'm going to fucking talk about Sauron and Saruman as, like, capitalists. I mean, I think they very much represent that, like, again, yeah. whether Tolkien realizes it or not, that's what they represent. And I also wanted to just couple that with, like, what I was saying before. I think a lot of the racism and white nationalism that you might even want to attribute to Tolkien in his writings, whatever, it's probably due to his fans. It really is just, like, about his fans. If you look at the screenshot again above of the one that I just read, like, what do they say, like... Tolkien fans don't get a lot of girls. I feel like they have a right to be angry here a little. It's not about racism, though, to me. It's more about trying to, quote, modernize or update Tolkien. That is the issue. And this is obviously somebody who's, like, trying to defend, like, why people are angry about, like, Black Lord of the Rings characters. And it's like, so he's coming off like an incel right off the bat, saying, like, Tolkien fans don't get a lot of girls. And then somebody responds to them, just, like, pointing out how ridiculous they are. And they're like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Tolkien is modernized when some actors are Black in an adaptation because... Being black is sort of a modern new invention, or I hope they're making fun. I hope they don't really think this. Like, <laughs> right? No, it, it it's really bizarre, and it is like total projection. I, I think of a lot of people that adopt it in a way that, again, I think Tolkien would have rejected, and he probably would have made fun of like these incels online. You know, <laughs> I just think it's weird. You know, because I've, I've heard that criticisms. Uh, you know, I pass by. You know, online when it comes to people being mad that there was like you know, uh, people of color that are, are, are hobbits or dwarves, whatever. To me, I'm just like, <laughs> what a really stupid thing to get mad about. You know, yeah. not even about like the movies, how they added, from what I understand, they added Legolas to like the Hobbit when he wasn't supposed to be in the Hobbit. Like, right. But get him mad about this dumb shit, you know? And you can tell who's really a fan, you know, who's like not racist by these things. But these are the same people I think they get mad about, like um, other characters, like the Little Mermaid situation, you know, or uh, other fantasy stuff, like fucking X Men, right? That don't really have are totally made up, right? And obviously, these some of these, you know, these these fantasy um, stories were made up, like in times where you know, like during the civil rights era, or 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 even before, like Superman or, or Batman, you know, and where there wasn't, they didn't add that many, you know, uh, people of color in these stories, but when they did, it was really shitty, you know? Um, but I think, uh, why not make, make it where there's different, you know, ethnicities? Why not? I mean, you're, you're, we are, you know, uh, I mean, if Tolkien said himself that he, you know, that, you know, he doesn't like, you know, you know racism, why, why not? You know, I mean, are you going to just cast just white people for these shows? You know, to me, I think it's a pretty shitty thing to do, you know? And I think, uh, it, to me, it's weird what, what the things that people get mad about. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like people want to live in a world where they get comforted in what they know in, in the systems, you know, capitalism, you know, colonization, and they don't want to get challenged. It's like they're afraid, 
you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And it's just part of like, you're right, Rick. It's the same people that, you know, are screaming this, the snowflakes that are having an absolute meltdown about a black aerial, you know, it's the same thing. And it's like, they're trying to cling to this, to this, to this idea and this thing that they're, that really doesn't belong to them to begin with, like just by nature of literature, you know what I mean? Like it never, it's yeah. never, it, it never belongs to just you or any group. And Tolkien, I don't think never would have intended that. You know, if people want to talk about like what Tolkien would have gotten mad at, I think that one tweet called it right is the fact that fucking Amazon is making this show without, you know, access to any of his notes and they're going to bilk it out for five seasons and God knows what else they're going to do after this. You know what I mean? Once, they turn it into the fucking Lord of the Rings multiverse. And at that point I will stop watching all the damn stuff. But you know what I mean, I mean, like, go ahead. didn't Amazon, I think Amazon bought ring, right? Did they buy ring? Which is no, like, a I, don't think so. I, I think I looked it up, but they didn't buy the, Oh, they the bought rights. Roomba or something. I, I, I confused. I think, don't quote me. But I, I, do well, I do want to say before I watch the show, um, like I, I was reading some articles and it, cause I came up on my phone. And it was like, oh, Lord of the Ring covers race and it covers imperialism. And I, and I, while I was watching that, I was like, oh, okay, I can see this, right? But it wasn't like race, like a white hobbit against a black hobbit. It was like race against humans against like elves, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's and when I was like, Tolkien talks about race. Like, They're like totally different creatures. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like I was like, oh, I see. I see what, talking about, what you know, this article was talking about. But, you know, I guess... You know, I don't know what you guys think about that or your thoughts on that. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. I think that would be an uncomfortable direction for the white nationalists to take because it's like, what's your allegory for the white nationalists? I think they would take it in direction of saying that like white people are like the humans and then they would probably try to say some racist shit about people of color being orcs or other species or whatever. And then that leaves them inferior to elves, which is like, where does that put you guys? Like, who are the elves supposed to be in that scenario? Because like we see the way that the elves are. So I think that that's, you know, uncomfortable for them, but it's also just nonsensical to begin with. I think the more sensible interpretation is that humans are all just one race and they're all equal. And some of them may be like horse oriented people and some may be like farmers and maybe there's even some short ones off there, but they're like still kind of related. It's like, I don't know. I, I think that it makes much more sense to just interpret it as there's one human race and they're all equally inferior to elves, which don't fucking exist. So that's fine. Yeah. So, and that's why I think like, if we are going to have any kind of like nuanced conversation about like race or anything like that, like in terms of like what's actually written in the books, like I've seen some, like, I'm going to call them like liberal articles talking about like how orcs are indicative of racism. And it's like, okay, they're fucking orcs. Like, give me a break. Like they're a fantasy, <laughs> they're a fantasy fucking monsters. Like I can't have like a serious, serious conversation with you about that. But I think we can actually have a conversation about in terms of like, Tolkien's influences again we talked about like the time that he grew up in and how that may have conveyed like if you look at if look at how like the geography of the Lord of the Rings is laid out like there is this notion that like the good people are in the west you know like again and it might just be like a chance of geography and stuff like that right so like but there's like there's the men like in the Lord of the Rings there's like the men the hobbits the elves in the north and the west right and like it's not just orcs in the east and the south it's also men who have been corrupted by Sauron. And again, I'm not trying to paint him as a racist here. My point is only that he may not have been immune to some kind of like orientalist, you know, given again, given the time period that he grew up in and where he grew up, it 
he might not have been immune to like some kind of like or orientalist tropes that were just kind of you know written in like that you know so i think that would actually be an interesting conversation to have not necessarily to damn him or give power to the fascists or anything like that but if you actually wanted to have just an honest conversation about it and like how someone in that time would have been influenced i think that's something you can actually talk about but don't don't give me racism against orcs like i don't fucking care about that yeah i, I kind of felt that when i watched the movie i think it was the third um or the ring movie where the, like the bad humans were on elephants and it kind of looked like a little bit Arabic. And I yeah. was like, what, why, why yeah. are they dressed like, like Arab, like in the Arab culture way and as bad, especially during that time, you know, after nine 11, you know, and I was just like, what the fuck's going on here? So I was, you know, I kind of felt kind of weird about that, but yeah, I, I do feel like there was, I mean, I'm not saying that, I, I don't know, did Tolkien describe them in that way or the people that made the movie made those humans so, in that way? I would have to go back and read some of that stuff. But like one word I remember that was used sometimes to kind of like describe like people from the South was like swarthy, you know, and like you, mm -hmm. I've heard like Italians described that way. And I've heard <laughs> another, you know what I mean? I've heard it, like, yeah. you know, people from further South described that way as well. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, that's the whole thing about that. It's like, you could, you could make that case that those, uh, the orcs and the, the Western men, all the corrupted men are supposed to be like people of color, but then that still creates that weird situation where like, those orcs are big and strong and badass. And then like those, even like those, um, what do you call them? Like the, the Middle Eastern looking kind of elephant riding men, they were, uh, they had like the eye makeup and everything. They looked all like emo chic and everything. It's like, okay, so you're getting to the territory where they're like the other, but they're also kind of hot. And, uh, maybe you're getting a little jealous that your girl wants to fucking work once in a while. I don't know, bro. Like, you know. <laughs> what I, what I will say though, about like the, the men thing, right. From what I know about like the mythology, is that he never like in the beginning like when like because he in the Silmarillion he kind of describes like kind of like how the world was formed right and like how this old universe is formed like no one is bad from the beginning right like there's like evil forces in the world that find their way and it just could be like a chance of like geography where like a group of people was close to like where Sauron was or Morgoth was like who was like the big bad before Sauron and the Silmarillion you know what I mean and they just got at people so like I guess he never envisioned any, you know, elf or man or anybody as like inherently evil. You know, the orcs even were just like a corruption of, of elves of something that was good from the beginning, you know? So I don't know if that adds anything to it. I just think that's a more interesting conversation to have than, you know, Oh, the it's racist, the orcs are racist. No, it's great. I mean, that's consistent with Marxism. I, you could just say that the corruption is fascism to like anybody can be, Healed. Like even the people who are willing to or able to resist the temptation of the ring and put down that powerful force, however, you know, tempting it may be, uh, those are the good people. And I think that's, again, consistent with Marxism, just allowing people to um, like welcoming people back in for their chosen beliefs and not discriminating against people for things they cannot control, like not assuming based on inherited characteristics that they're bad. Right. Well, like to that point, like, again, if we wanted to take out like the imagery a little bit even more, it's like once Sauron is defeated and everything like that, like the lands around Mordor start to be good again. You know what I mean? Like they start to kind of blossom and, you know, t people move back there. You know what I mean? And then like there's certain wars fought with other men. But then I think if I remember correctly, like Aragorn, who's king, like afterwards, like, you know, kind of makes peace and like the, the bad men, quote unquote, like aren't 
you know, they aren't necessarily inherently bad, like you're saying, you know? Um, so it's kind of interesting. I, I think the other interesting thing to talk about in, in relation to, I don't know what we again can take from it is that, and this is something that Rick, you may not know. Cause if, if you haven't read the books, it they actually cut it out of the movies, but so Sar- Saruman doesn't actually die on top of the tower, like above after like the ends come in and fucking destroy Isengard, which is awesome in its own right. And like a very powerful, like, you know, symbol of environmentalism, right? Like where the, the, the literal trees come in and destroy all the machinery and everything that was made by like, again, the capitalist Saruman, right? But like in the book, he doesn't die at that point. Treebeard actually lets him go, the big end dude. And he goes back with Wormtongue to the Shire. And he brings like these evil men and like they start industrializing the Shire. Okay. So yeah, all up. like the guy Sharky, I think it was called, right? Yeah, Sharky. Right. So he comes back. Um, he goes back there. And this is all happening while like Frodo is Frodo and everybody is like hanging out after they've destroyed the ring and they're taking like a slow walk home. Right. So after all this, the four hobbits, you know, Mary, Pippin, Sam, Sam's the hero of the whole story, just to throw that in there as well. But Mary, Pippin, Sam and Frodo, they go back and instead of like just kind of like retiring, you know, peacefully, they come back to find like this kind of ravaged Shire and it's Saruman that's behind it. Right. And all of the halflings, the hobbits are kind of subjugated by like Saruman and like this small group of like men like the brutal men who are like making them work, essentially enslaving them. But it's only when the hobbits get organized under the leadership of the four like hero hobbits that they're able to fucking throw Saruman out and get their life back and restore the Shire to what it was supposed to be, which is again, you know, this land and community centered around like helping each other, giving each other gifts, um, living in peace, enjoying the countryside, feasting and smoking. This was in the books. Yeah. They should have yeah. added a whole n- another movie to this. What the fuck? Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> I mean, would have watched that. There's yeah. like that. I think that and the Tom Bombadil thing are probably the two biggest things that were left out of the books that, um, did, yeah, they didn't make it to the movies. Um, and I think they're both incredibly interesting. Like you said, it's funny the way that they had to organize to get their, you know, uh, what do you call it? Idyllic lifestyle back. And then the Tom Bombadil thing, like, I was thinking while you were saying that, I think Tom Bombadil's role is that, what did you call it? The no, Nolo Esca Episcopari leader. Like Tom Bombadil is the leader who is above it all. He would like, because he's not a leader. Like, so Rick, again, just to, Tom Bombadil is an interesting character because in the first book, before they even really get anywhere, they don't even get to the point of like, um, meeting Aragorn or like to the, the village in Bree. They, before they get there, they there's two detours that they take. Well, I mean, a couple. They get trapped by, like, a fucking willow tree. They meet Tom Bombadil, who's, like, this woodland king in a weird way. He just lives in the woods with Goldberry. And just imagine, like, a, a gnome who, like, I don't know, lives around a bunch of those, like, red and white mushrooms or whatever. Like, he's got this, like, house in the forest or whatever. It's just, like, so weird the way it all works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like none of it makes any sense. Like you get the <laughs> you get the picture that they are trees the second you like look away, but they like take human form as soon as you're around or something. And at one point, like Frodo hands Tom Bombadil the ring, and Tom Bombadil puts it on, and not only does he not disappear when he does it, 
he holds the ring in his hand and then flicks it and makes it disappear and then just flicks it back into existence as soon as Frodo realizes that he's scared because the ring is gone and he doesn't understand it. So it's like this totally mysterious thing. And then even when they get to um, what is the uh, to Elrond's house? Where what is that called? Rivendell. Yeah, even then when they get to Rivendell, Frodo asks, like, why can't we just give the ring to Tom Bombadil? Because he has he obviously has some kind of power over it that we don't understand. And Gandalf says, Oh no, you couldn't do that because he would just like drop it. He would just totally forget about it. Like he just does not give a fuck about power or any of the things that like us humans and us uh vain people give a fuck about. Like he would just drop it somewhere and forget about it, and then Sauron would find it again. So you cannot you cannot give it to Tom Bombadil. And so he's like one of the most interesting characters in the whole series of the books and gets completely left out of the movies. And I think, again, it was because Peter Jackson just didn't have the political, I mean, the political, the, the cash in Hollywood and the, the literal cash to like make that kind of a movie and include such a huge character like that. And it would have been very confusing for people who were not familiar, but like very interesting. I think he is the, the Nolo Escapari leader. No, that's great, man. Yeah. I'm excited to read. So I started reading it again because like the first time I think as like a as a communist. So I want I'm going to try to read it again through that lens. And I'm really excited to get to that part, you know, because that's a part when you're a kid that you just you just don't get, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like what I mean, is I this? just listen to it again. and I still don't get the whole Tom Bombadil point other than that's the only thing that I can take from it is because like once you put this letter here into the notes, like it finally made sense, like. Tolkien idolizing the leader who does not want to be a leader and is put in that position unwillingly like that makes the tom bombadil character kind of make sense now yeah um but then the fact that like yeah he didn't write the novel in such a way that like the eagles forced the ring into tom bombadil's hands or something it's like you can tell that he's not doing it as an allegory uh and, and gandalf for that matter right i mean frodo offers the ring to gandalf off the beginning and like while gandalf still has the recognition that like it would it would take to like he could, he would never be able to set it aside. He would use it, right? But he still had enough to turn it away because he knew what it would do to him. You know what I mean? But then, by that same token, that is why Sam Gamgee is the hero of the entire story. Is because he's the yeah. Hobbit who also has that same power that even Gandalf and um, who's the um, the elf queen who refused the ring as well, Galadriel. Yeah, she also turned it down. And they are elves, like they're obviously superior to men and to hobbits. But then hobbits, like Sam Gamgee, who's this little fat gardener hobbit, is able to turn down the power of the ring. Even though he could have definitely taken it from Frodo, he could have like done something at some point if he really wanted to be conniving. But he not only is able to resist that, but then carries Frodo to the end and gets rid of it. Yeah, and that's another like really... I think Marxist or it's, it's close to Marxism. I think he individualizes it too much, you know, um, and that it's just like these single characters, but again, he's placing, he's placing all the emphasis and all of his belief on like ordinary people at the end of the day. Like he says at the beginning, like, you know, despite again in the forward before we even get into the book, because I think this is important. It's like, he says, this is a book about hobbits, you know? So that's, I think, where he places the prime importance. And, like, he spends a lot of time on, like, letting you know that, like, these are just ordinary people. So I think, and I think we see that even in his, like, in his letter to his son as well. You know what I mean? It's, like, normal people that are important, you know? Again, how it's applied and how we actually take political power, I don't think he's got a lot of thought on that. But, like, I think some of his instincts are good, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Did you guys have anything else on that? I mean, I've got a couple other things we can talk about. I mean, if we want to do some quick hitting uh, stuff about Tolkien, one of my favorite things is that he called Hitler a ruddy little ignoramus, which mm. I thought was was kind of funny. Um, I, I thought one of the other good things about him was that when he was trying to work out a, a German translation for The Hobbit, he was working um, with this publisher, Stanley and Unwin, um, and basically, as he was, they were trying to facilitate this German translation. The German, which was on the Germany, which was under Hitler at the time, like wrote back to him inquiring about his, you know, his racial origins, right? And he kind of wrote back to the publisher. He sent them two letters. He's like, essentially, listen, you know, you guys got to get this published. It's at your discretion. But he sent them two versions of the letter. The one version that they didn't send read like this: it says, "Thank you for your letter." I regret that I am not clear as to what you intend by Arish. I am not of Aryan extraction. That is Indo-Iranian. As far as I'm aware, none of my ancestors spoke Hindustani, Persian, Gypsy, or any related dialects. So he's like, fuck you. You're, refer you're referring to a linguistic class, not a fucking race of people, you idiots. It's like, I know more than you about this shit. Um, he goes, but if I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret to appear that I have no ancestors of that gifted people. My great, great grandfather came to England in the 18th century from Germany. The main part of my descent is therefore purely English and I am an English subject, which should be sufficient. I have been accustomed nonetheless to regard my German name with pride and continue to do so throughout the period of the late regrettable war in which I served in the English army. I cannot, however, forbear to comment that if impertinent and irrelevant inquiries of this sort are to become the rule in matters of literature, then the time is not too far distant when a German name will no longer be a source of pride. I thought that was kind of a, a fun response. I, um, sorry, I was a little distracted when you were reading the last thing because I went back to that letter that was frustrating me so much. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to, I was just looking at the webpage again. And so the webpage that was published on was Peace requires anarchy. It's a WordPress blog. Yeah. And then at the very bottom of it, the author is peace requires anarchy. And they have a little note and it says, quote, a consistent peace activist must be an anarchist. And the quote is from Roderick T. Long. And the way that they had this quote framed, it's like a bubble in its own box, which means that I think it's something that is tagged at the end of like every article that this person puts on the little WordPress blog. So it must be important to them. And I remember hearing the name of Roderick T. Long. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Because I know what I remember his name from. And what I remember his name from is this thing called How Government Solved the Healthcare Crisis. And it's by Roderick T. Long. And it basically was this thing that like I was into when I was a 20-year-old cringe libertarian. And it's this whole, it's like a page long. And it's perfect for fucking dumb libertarians because it, it's, it's simple and it sounds catchy, but it's dumb. Mm -hmm. and, but it, like it hooks people in. And basically what he just says in like a page is like, it used to be that you could go to a low quality doctor if you just knew that you had like a toothache and you could get them to remove your tooth and it would cost you like a quarter. And then government came in or government came in and they fucked everything up with their regulation and they created the, uh, the AMA, which is the American Medical Association or something. And they created regulation to make sure that you got a high quality doctor wherever you went. So now you can't just get a cheap doctor when you have a cheap problem to fix you have to pay hundreds of dollars to get totally examined by a doctor. And that sounds, again, like it sounds simple. It sounds good to like farmersonly.com kind of people. But it's like, when you think about it for even a fucking second, it's like, yeah, you yeah. obviously want to know that you're not seeing a fucking quack when you go to the doctor. 
And you shouldn't just trust your own instinct that like your toothache is just a fucking toothache. And it's not like because you have a nerve in your back that's connected to your tooth and it's like a pinched spinal column. It's like, you know what I mean? Like there's an, an array of things that you cannot diagnose yourself and you need a professional to do that. And so regulation in this case is actually a good thing. And the fact is corruption in the healthcare industry is the reason it's so expensive. It's not about the fucking regulation. But yeah. I just, it's a, it's a tangent to go on, but all that is to say, I think the agenda of the person who compiled this letter on that blog that we read obviously is leaning toward the fucking ANCAP side because then I, when, I, when I just Googled Roderick T. Long, the first thing that comes up is he's a praxeologist, which is definitely relevant to what I've been doing lately. Talking with these fucking ANCAPs have been driving me nuts. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not want to talk to Tolkien about politics, I don't think, you know? Like on a personal yeah, level. Roger, Roderick T. Long's homepage is called praxeology.net. So he is like uh, a direct influence of these fucking, of fucking Praxben and all these assholes. Amazing. Sorry, I just went down that rabbit hole like while you were talking and I had to, I had to share. No, it's just, it's interesting because it's just goes to show that like, even with Tolkien, like with all the value that he put on like nature and stuff like that, he just couldn't, I, I just don't think he recognized capitalism as the dr motive force behind that. Like literally like the, the motive force that is in some ways like deeper, what in, in many ways depersonalized from like individual people as like leading to the destruction that he disdained so much, right? Whether it had been war that, you know, he served in and lost all his friends in or like the deindustrialization of Birmingham, which was again, or not the deindustrialization, but the industrialization of Birmingham, which again, I think he saw over the course of his childhood, which again, I think shows up as influences in all these stories, but I don't just don't think he was ever able to connect to those things. Like he wanted to get to that, to an, a good place, a place that I think we all would see value in. But again, if you don't have, if you don't have the right methods, <laughs> based in, you know, dialectical materialism, we're not going to get there. <laughs> so. I was just going to say, the only thing I had coming into tonight, I don't know if you guys are getting close to like wrapping it up, but I'm to the, about to the end of like what I have to say about Tolkien yeah. from a leftist perspective. But the only question I even had coming into tonight that I'd like to ask anybody when it comes to Lord of the Rings and politics is, what do you think is the political system of the Shire? Like if you just had to assign a label to it, like what do you think it is? And I'll let either of you guys answer because I obviously have my own opinions. I think it would be like more like old school tribalism because it's like, you know, community. I mean, I, I don't know if they hunt. I, I, I've never read the books. But obviously, people, you know, I mean, I didn't see. I mean, I, I'm taking from what I saw in the movies, our community that makes sure everybody's fed. You know, I, I didn't see. Um, any factories in the Shire in movies or doors? I mean, I could be wrong. And from what I, you just told me that there was, you know, what's his name? Sauron came on there and they started industrializing. So maybe just like free industrial society, you know, economically, I don't know. I mean, uh, so yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to look here. So, just on the topic of like machinery and factories, like he mentions again in the, in the prologue describing hobbits, he says they, they're largely, um, I'm sorry, they're 
Loving peace and quiet, good tilled earth, a well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favorite haunt. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a handloom. So they are skillful with tools. So I think there was like some semblance of like, I mean, there is monetary exchange in in it because like there's like in the writings, there's like, oh, well, Bilbo's like paying people to come in and like cater this party. So there is like some form of like maybe like a small market kind of mechanism at some way you know what i mean but like i didn't get the sense that like the profit motive was driving anything it's not like the hot the shire was like expansionist it was like they were making for the needs of the community right like the miller was milling what was needed for hobbiton or whatever it might be you know what i mean like they were producing like the bricks and stones needed to build the houses for the folks that were there already you know gardening in their own garden so i guess i would get more towards like and I, I am not as well versed in like a lot of like the different um, subsections of what we'll call like left anarchism or whatever. But I, I do think it's on the left and I think it's some form of like maybe cynicalism or something like to that nature. But I, I, again, I don't have like a great analysis of that. What do you think? I think, you know, watching the shows too, is it aren't the Heartfoots or those hobbits pre Shire hobbits? Yeah. Am I wrong? Or is that? Yeah. So to me, I found that fascinating too. They didn't just have hobbits in a shower. They were like hobbits. They're almost like um, Romani people. With, yeah, nomadic. Yeah. yeah. So very nomadic people. And I was like, oh, this is really cool, man. So, I, you know, it wasn't just, uh, I guess, a town in place. But I think, yeah, I think it's really cool, you know? I think, um, of course, I think the Shire is just the perfect off-left uh utopia right like of course i'm going to say that because i'm i'm me i have my show that you know what i do um it's totally not just me interpreting like imposing my own values onto the shire that's definitely how it was written but no i mean i can definitely make that case and i feel like i can make it consistently because of course it makes sense to like western audiences to say that the shire is like the perfect anarcho commune um the perfect like homestead kind of like village where you know or even like a pre-industrialized anything but that's ignoring all the protections that the Shire has around it. And that I would call like the Vanguard party or like the people's liberation army or whatever you need to call it, like in a, in a communist world that is protecting it from Sauron, the fascists, like all the corrupt people, all the, the bad people. It's like so many points in the books. And I think even in the movies, like when uh, Boromir or Faramir and, and their dad, uh, I can't remember his name either. Um, and it was, yeah, thank you. Um, who was saying how they protected people in in the innocent places from all the bad people for so long at great cost to themselves. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's what is necessary. And then to really drive that point home, they had to get the people in the anarcho-commune, like the privileged people who were benefiting from that, to step up and act in an authoritarian way and go to battle and destroy the evil once and for all to solidify that and destroy the whole class conflict once and for all. And to, and to actually, like, extend that utopia everywhere for everyone so that they didn't have to, like, sacrifice themselves to... Because you could definitely make the case that the Shire, pre the battle for the ring or whatever, was like a Western imperialist land where everybody's living off of the backs of everyone else and all the effort that they're making to protect them. And, like, when Bilbo goes around and just, like, brings a bunch of fucking treasure back. It's like, if that isn't like the English to a T, I don't know what it is. It's like, right. <laughs> that's what they do. But then 
they realize the error of the ways. They realize they can't just go and take from the world and bring it back to the Shire and live in the lap of luxury. They have to go and get themselves involved. They have to get their hands dirty and they have to make some sacrifices. And luckily they were able to come back home and reap the benefits of that. But that's what you have to do if you want to solidify that kind of peace. Yeah, I like that as well, man. I'm just saying, man, like we have the right idea. Everybody just has to get on board. That's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Like however, however you view like the Shire and what it is, it's like it's going to take work to get to that point if that's truly what you want. And it's going to take fighting the fascists like Sauron and Saruman. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I think Tolkien didn't even realize that himself when he wrote it. But like, that is what it takes. Like, you just have to beat the fascists and you have to then also because I think that even in that case, there probably is some kind of like stay behind force. Like, there's got to be some kind of like just watchful eye of the Shire to make sure that like Sauron's forces don't creep up again in some way. You know what I mean? Like that guy loves to just come back from the dead. Yep. Sure. Well, I think that's about all I got. I think that's a good a place as any to wrap up, you know, off left Shire, baby. I mean, that's all I wanted to get across. That was, yeah. I was waiting the whole time. <laughs> Saving that for the end. But uh, no, I want to thank you guys for like indulging me. This was like, I don't know. This was definitely like a pet project and something out of left field, you know, no pun intended. Um, but I thought it was fun. So I want to, you know, just thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, join. I had a lot of fun doing this. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You don't have to twist my arm to get me to talk about Lord of the Rings and communism. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Rick, I know you got to hop off and uh, I know we're wrapping up anyway, but do you want to plug your stuff, Rick? And I'll post obviously all your links and everything, but uh, let yeah. folks know where to find you. Decolonized Buffalo is native communist, native Marxist perspective on you know just stuff a lot of different stuff even even chinese history we have carl's on there um i appreciate this too i really like lord of the rings more than game of thrones you know the two shows are big right now um yeah. a lot more you know lord of the rings but yeah i mean maybe we do one of these after the season's over with lord of yeah. the rings i think we should an analyze the, this the, the show itself because that right there I, I freaking love that show yeah so yeah thank you no, I'm enjoying it too. And I'd be definitely down for that, man. And with that, just, you know, we are going to have Rick back on hopefully soon to talk about decolonization. I want to do like a little bit of an interview. So we'll get that yeah. on our feed as well. So looking forward to that. But uh, thanks again, man. And Mike, go ahead with your plugs, man. I know. I think people are probably that listen to our podcast are getting familiar with everybody. I might as well get them in there. Well, I think that's the great benefit of the live show, right? Like everybody's yeah. just like getting all the, the podcast together. Um, but yeah, obviously it's Turn Leftist podcast. Check it out. Linktree slash Turn Leftist. But yeah, I was super happy to do this too. I mean, like I said, I love talking Lord of the Rings, love talking communism, but uh, I would love to do it again after the show's over because like I said, I haven't watched any of it, but that would give me another excuse to do that again. So definitely. Oh yeah, let's plan on it. Um, well, thanks again, guys. Um, as always, you know, I'm at InterventionPod on Instagram. And if you want to shoot us a note, we're at InterventionPod at gmail.com. Um, and as always, thanks for listening and we'll uh, talk to y'all next week. Thank you, brother.